Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Good to put a uh, good to put a face to the name, and welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. Um, we've got my colleague Sarah, Sarah, with us today. Um, Hi, yeah, so uh, Sarah, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself um, for those of you who don't know? Absolutely. So my name's Sarah De Cruz. I'm sure you would have seen me um, on your LinkedIn feed. Probably too much would be your initial thought, but I'm an SAP recruiter in Jay's team. Been with Precision for three years now. I love food and long walks on the beach. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> and um, Greg, to introduce you, Sarah's going to take you through um, a quick fire question round. So it's just 20 questions so that the market can get to know yourself. But yeah, over to you, Sarah, if you want to take Greg through that. Sure can. All righty, Greg, let's do it. So, full name, please. Sure, Sarah. Gregory Charles Donaldson. Charles oh, is my, uh, my uh, grandfather's name. So. Oh, lovely. And very English. That is very English. Yes. <laughs> and um, a look, nickname for that? I don't, I don't particularly have one. Um, in the past, I've sometimes been called the Don. Now, <laughs> I think that's mostly because I'm such a cricketer, like Don Bradman, but other people remind me that's also the name of an underworld character. So, <laughs> so a little bit of both. We'll let the audience decide at the end of this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And where are you from? Uh, I was born in Manly Hospital in um, in Sydney on the northern beaches and uh, sort of thing. So I've uh, I've lived overseas a little bit, um, but I live in the northwest of Sydney now. So. Just bought a place in Mali. I'm moving there soon, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic place. So I, I grew up on the northern beaches, uh, sort of thing. So probably just two or three beaches north of Manly, um, where I lived at South Kilkel, um, was where I lived for most of my um, child life. So that was a really cool place to grow up. Nice. Okay, go. And how long have you been in Australia? Uh, well, uh, so I've I've been in Australia for all of my life except for eight years. Uh, I lived in London for five years and New Zealand for three years, but both with work assignments. Oh, that would have been good. Can't still can't get behind London one hundred percent. I hear we'll get there. Every time I go, it's just so concrete. I think I'm very spoiled with the green in Australia. Um, <laughs> Best city in the world, Sarah. I know. Half the office always comes like, "Ooh, you don't live there." Then. Um, and where are you currently working? Um, so um, uh, so up, up until recently, I finished about a week ago, I was at Ball, um, sort of thing. I was the uh, the project leader there for their uh, transformation, which was an SAP uh, implementation greenfield, and also to a business transformation to a company. Okay. And best job you've ever had? Oh, look, it's, I think it's always a bit hard to identify those. Um, I'm probably not going to – look, if I had to choose one, um, I probably would say the London job that I did. That was my last job I did with Unilever um, sort of thing. The part that was really good with that is I think it was partly a stage of career thing where I'd been working for about 15 years at that point, um, and you just see a really big stage, um, you know, coming from a company that was $1 or $2 billion of turnover to one that's about $60 billion of turnover at the head office globally – for a true multinational, you just saw so many things and met so many different people, um, which really opened your eyes up. Um, that was probably the part I liked most about that. 
Okay. And it's in the best city in the world, Sarah. Yeah, I know, but he didn't mention <laughs> that, did he? Didn't mention that. So, and worst job, you feel free to say London again if you want. Oh, Sarah, a gentleman never tells. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of thing. But look, the, the 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 idea of a bad job for me would be if you just weren't able to achieve your potential, um, if you lost sight of the objectives. Um, you know what I mean? And if you just weren't doing what you were really setting out to achieve. Um, sort of thing. So that they would be the bad definitions for me, but I, I won't um, call that. I've been, I've been super lucky in my career, the opportunities I've had. Um, there's nothing that I really regret, so um, sort of thing. But if you think about the characteristics, they would be the ones. That's a good, uh, that's a good outlook to have. And um, favourite sport? We're into the easier ones now. <laughs> Oh, cool. Um, so cricket, I'm a real cricket tragic, has to be said. Sorry, I can't deny it, just the way it is. Um, and also, too, I'm a big Formula One fan. Um, so I support the Ferrari team wholeheartedly. Yes, I know they spend the most, and yes, I know they perform the least, but no one else is like Ferrari. So One very fast sport, one really slow sport. What an interesting dichotomy we have there. <laughs> um, Favourite beer? Uh, I would, uh, it, I tend to probably drink more wine than beer. Um, I do collect wine for partly an investment and partly an interest um, sort of thing. Uh, but if I did have a, a beer, I love a James Bogues, really cold. Um, yeah, that was one beer. thing in London I really struggled with, where they all drink those semi-warm, really heavy beers, and I'd have my little girly lager and everyone would make fun But beer should be really cold and really crisp and warms and cools you down. That's what beer's all about. Yeah. And uh, favourite meal? Uh, look, being an Aussie boy, I like a barbecue would be right up there uh, sort of thing. But if I wasn't doing that, I tend to like uh, probably Italian food or Asian food um, sort of thing, just with lovely, simple, fresh ingredients, simply prepared. I don't particularly like really 27-course uh, menu options or whatever. Bigger stations, wine pairings, well, you know, phones. You know, you know, they've got a four-hour prepare for it. You just think, no, could you please just cook it in 10 minutes and <laughs> <laughs> make it tasty? That'll be perfectly fine. And what's been your number one lockdown tip, probably topical since we're in the middle of one? I think the key thing is exercise. You've got to get out of the house. Um, for example, today it's raining. Uh, it's the first day for I think about a month it's rained. Probably, in fact, probably two months maybe it's rained. Uh, and no, so we get up at about quarter past five, five thirty. My wife and I go for a walk with the dogs. And you know when you wake up and you think, oh, I don't feel like going today. But you think if I don't leave the house for this walk, I'm not going to leave the house again today, so I must go. Um, so you have to do your exercise. I think it just changes your mental outlook for the day um, and just gives you so much more energy. So I think that's the key. Hundred percent, definitely. Doing first thing, doing it first thing in the morning before your day starts as well is always is always a benefit, isn't it? It's almost like you're you're one new up in you know football terms straight yeah. away before yeah. you start the day. So. Oh, 100%. I, yeah, exactly. And also, too, when things get busy and if you run over time, you miss the opportunity and then, you know, it's getting to six o'clock, it's dark, <laughs> it's cold, you really don't want to go. So I think if you start the day early, it's just the best way to go. And how do you keep yourself sane? Uh, that's a good question. Um, for me, I actually really enjoy the people I work with. I take a lot of pleasure uh, from the people I work with. I work closely with them and um, and take a lot of enjoyment from my work through that. Um, also, my family are very good at keeping me centred and normal um, sort of thing, just, you know, being in different, uh, different bubbles of interest. And the other thing, too, is I need about an hour or so a day of just peace and quiet on my own. Yeah. 
Um, Fair enough. Very fair. Just to to kind of be able to process your thoughts and to sit quietly and do exactly what you want to do. So that's kind of my usually my TV time at the night time sort of thing, just to um, just just allow that balancing out. And if you could describe your management style in one word, what would it be? Uh, I'd like to use the word I think inclusive, if I could. Uh, I like to have my team members all feeling part of what we're doing. Uh, I don't want anyone feeling more or less valued because they're at the top of the tree or the bottom of the tree uh, sort of thing. Uh, I think everyone's got a contribution to make. I think everyone's a little bit different uh, sort of thing. I I specifically like to have different, more diverse teams uh, sort of thing. So, And really, I've seen sometimes the most senior people have the best ideas and I've seen the most junior people have the best ideas. And in my team, whoever's got the best idea is what we run with. So um, so that's where, I, again, I like people just to feel valued, part of the team uh, sort of thing, and also to on a journey where they're going to learn something and develop themselves. Like, yes, we've got a mission to deliver um, but sort of thing, but I think also to the personal development angle is a really, really important part of what a leader does. I remember on the uh, Alex Aitken podcast, first one we've done in, in uh, series one, uh, he said if, he, if he's the most intelligent person in the room, we're in trouble. So, um, <laughs> and what he meant by that is basically encouraging the team to bring ideas and and um, yeah, the, obviously you go with the best one, which you just obviously you know recognise that as well, which is great. Oh, I agree, Jay. I, I think it's one of these things where, and it's a bit of a. I think you need to be quite secure as a leader that you don't know all the answers and there are other people who know things better than you and there are sometimes people who have better ideas. I actively say to my staff, if you've got a better idea, tell me and we'll run with yours. Um, you know, you don't have to be the, the all-knowing chief to be the, the best leader. You know, it's about getting the best out of the, the whole team. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And you'll see that in our own Simon Hare, who's going to love that he's getting a shout-out right now. But it is true, he surrounds us, he always says, just outsource your weakness. If you're not good at something, totally fine. Find someone who's good at it and give the job to them. No, I, I think so, Sarah. And look, the other thing as well, too, is I, I think, and again, if you go along the, the security path, like I've always had the thought, if I get to the point where I'm the weakest link in my team, I would be so thrilled of that. You know, because you put the most fantastic team in place, that, that's what a leader does um, sort of thing. And if it turns out everyone else is so much better and you're the weak link, I'd be really proud of that. I wouldn't be ashamed. I'd be really proud. So, you know, so this is where you just got to be a bit comfortable in your skin with with leadership things. Like you've got to make yourself human to your people uh, sort of thing. I think you've also got to set a direction um, and also be realistic as well. You know, and no one expects you to be a genius every day. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the expectation. So. Definitely. And um, favourite music and or film? Ah, okay. Um, in terms of music, I, uh, being a Northern Beaches boy who grew up in the 1980s, um, Australian pub rock from the 80s, and also to a lot of uh, <laughs> rock music from the 60s as well, um, which is probably what my parents were listening to around about the time I was born. Uh, I'm not going to think about that uh, sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> they're probably my favourite music. So I like I like a bit of classical, I like a bit of jazz as well. So, you know, music's a fantastic um, thing. In terms of movies, uh, The Godfather's my all-time favourite. So classic. Maybe, oh, that's where, classic. maybe that's where the Don reference comes from. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no matter how many times I watch it, I still enjoy it. So. Yeah, for sure. And we're on the final five now. So the best holiday destination. Uh, what I love is two things, either fantastic nature or fantastic his- history. 
I'm a big fan of history, so uh, sort of thing. So with some of our bigger holidays, we might have, say, gone to Europe and we might go to some of the historic cities for part of the time. And then you might, say, go to Iceland, for example, where, you know, just have that. For me, they're probably the two the two most exciting things that I like the best. So, And I've dragged my kids through so many churches and temples and museums and art galleries. <laughs> I remember when my kids were probably about five or seven, one of them said to me, Daddy, please don't go art galleries today. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, sort of thing. So that, that's for me. I, I love the history and uh, and also too nature's fantastic as well. Yeah, definitely. I'd never seen a landscape like Iceland the first time I went. Um, yeah. Booked out a full five days, was dedicated. I'm seeing the Northern Lights. I cannot leave Northern Europe before I see them. Five days, cloudy all of them. And there, every time we're like taken to a bus, there's a different area. Okay, bus driver. All right, everyone get out, put your coats on. We're sitting there, we're huddling. Just looking up at the sky, clouds, nothing but clouds for five full days. Oh, it's a hope. It's an, we went there for the best time of year, for the best year in 10. We saw absolutely nothing after five days. <laughs> absolute marketing hoax. Oh, dear me. And bucket list thing to do. Oh, uh, at the moment, I would love to go on an aeroplane again. Um, that's probably <laughs> <laughs> that's probably my first thing. Uh, but in terms of countries that I haven't been to, I'd love to go to. Um, if I go with travel, because I'm a big travel fan, uh, love to get to Russia, love to get to Japan, love to get to South Africa. Uh, I haven't actually been to any of those places yet. So Japan looks pretty cool. Looks really Japan. clean as well, isn't it? It does. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, there are no public bins in Japan because everyone has such a respect for where they are. They carry their rubbish with them and then get rid of it at home, which I just thought when I realised that, I was like, this is like another level of society that we've entered. I remember, I remember at the, I think it was the World Cup, yeah, the Football World Cup and um, the Japanese team, they left the changing room exactly how they found it yep. and then put, put a note on the, the bench just saying thank you for your hospitality, basically. So, yeah, yeah unbelievable. Another yeah. level, isn't it? Um, and favourite city that might tie in quite well. Oh, sorry, you know what this is going to be? <laughs> um, it, it has to be London. I, love <laughs> I told you so, best city in the world. Yeah. <sighs> Having lived there for so long, I love the history. Uh, I love the detail that's just around the corner. Uh, I love the little alleys here and there where stories have been told and the pubs that are 500 years old and people have been talking nonsense for all that time. Um, I also think it's a very, in many ways, it's a very resilient and forward-looking country as well. Um, I was there during the GFC when, you know, that that was a really, really messy time uh, sort of thing. And just how the country came together, did the whole austerity thing and charge forward, really, really impressive. Um, so, um, so, so that's a, a bit of a cultural thing and having lived there for a little while, I see it a bit differently. But, um, you know, just the, the, the landscapes that are around, the people that are there, such an international city. It is a truly international city um, sort of thing. So that would be my favourite. So the okay. closest one is after would be... New York, Paris, and Rome. So, yeah, London's like a, it's like an outdoor museum, isn't it? Like you said, that the, the pubs are yeah, you know, five hundred years old, and it's just so much to see. Oh, it is, Jay. Look, look, I remember. I think I'd been there for maybe about a month or so, and we were publishing the report and accounts, and so we went along to review the document, and we went to a pub that was one hundred and fifty years older than my country. <laughs> and you yeah. just think, okay, and that's like the corner pub. That's like the local. Exactly. It's been there. 
exactly. <laughs> you know, so we've got a building that's 100 or 150 years old and we have a party. You know, there's a pub there that's 400 years old and people just go there and drink beer and talk nonsense. So, you know, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And um, if you weren't in SAP, what would you do? Uh, definitely something of a transformation type nature. Um, to me, in many ways, the SAP part is about transformation and it's about making change. It's a tool to help us achieve and make things better, um, you know, sort of thing. I think that's what this is all about. No one ever does anything to keep things the same or to maintain a status quo. Um, it's how do you kind of make things as good as what they can do. Um, for me, a system is a great enabler and SAP is the, the best one you can get in terms of what I look for in a system and what I think companies that I work with need uh, sort of thing. So it's a really, really good system, but it's really much more around the transformation part. It's around taking people on the journey, uh, mm -hmm. sort of thing, achieving your outcomes and, and the soft skills as much as the technology. You know, IT programs are not about the technology. It's about how do you change your business and change the people. That's the success factor, not the technology stuff. And a last one, a fun fact about yourself. Oh, uh, I, oh, yeah, what I do, one of the things that keeps me sane, I've got a um, 1966 Ford Mustang, so it's very loud. Uh, it's not very good, not very good on the fuel economy and it's not very good on the creature comforts, uh, but on a Sunday afternoon for an hour, it makes a lot of noise and creates a lot of fun. So, uh, <laughs> so that's probably the one thing which, uh, not a, well, sorry, people who know me well know I've got it, but um, sort of thing, because I'm a bit of a closet greenie is the way that I describe myself, but for that one hour... <laughs> Fall <laughs> out the window. Yeah. <laughs> one hour a week, petroleum products are burned and some noise is made. So, but no, but it's it's really really good fun. I I love the the more I drive the old car, the more I appreciate my new car. Uh, and when I drive my modern cars, uh, sort of thing, you really appreciate the old car as well. So you actually get the benefit from both. Brilliant. All right. Well, um, that, that's brilliant. Thanks for going through that, um, Sarah and, and Greg. Um, obviously, we know more about yourself now, which is good, and you've introduced yourself. So let's get into the um, the crux of it. I'd like to um, understand your story and, and how you got into SAP. Um, so if you could take us through that, Greg, that would be brilliant. Yeah, no, fantastic, Jay. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So my journey uh, started probably when I was in uh, London, that would have been probably about 2007, 8, 9, that sort of time. We were putting in a global um, consolidation system for our financial results. Uh, we had this kind of um, smaller, um, what would you say, customised version that we'd use, been using for some time um, when we moved out into the um, into the BCS module of, of SAP sort of thing. So that was really interesting to start to come from, again, a very bespoke, smaller um, solution, which kind of did exactly what we needed to do, and we'd used it for such a long time. Everyone was so familiar with it. Coming then to more of an industry standard thing was a bit of an adjustment for the business, um, but it was really nice to see the benefits that came from it and how you needed also to the discipline and the rigour. You know, you can't just press the button and the magic happens. You know, you've got to do the supporting actions as well. So that was really my first contact. Um, when I came back to Australia, then I was working with DHL. They were an Oracle user, so I was kind of out for five years there. Um, then after I left DHL and went to Veolia, um, we were the first company, I think we were the first company in Australia to put in S4. Um, I think a, an educational institution was before us, um, but we went live with S4 in late 2016 um, sort of thing. So that was basically finance procurement projects scope. Um, and so look, that, that was really, really interesting. It was great to see because we had this crusty old ECC or it might have even been an R3 
um, version that we had. It was a while ago now and it was very, very old. But then when you saw the new release, it was just so exciting to see things like Fiori apps and you don't need to recognise those dreadful T codes. Um, you know, it was just so, so much more. And again, from a user perspective, you think, okay, this is the system I want to use. I don't want those dreadful T codes. I don't want to have to remember dreadful menus. Um, it was just so refreshing, the opportunities that it, that it offered the users. And also too, from an adoption, from a change management perspective, um, it, it was just so much better. So um, so, that, so that was a successful implementation that actually went really well. Um, was that with, with that. Um, Safa Pillai <laughs> was, was there, wasn't he? Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. Safa was our, our project manager. He was fantastic. So mm -hmm. uh, sort of thing. And it was a, a, just a really, really solid team where we all had the same objectives and we all had the same um, so the same wish to to get to where we got to. And it was the first time, um, and it was really funny because when we went live, we were the first time in the history of the group. Now, I remember the Violi group was founded by Napoleon himself, that, that an ERP project ever went live on time. So, <laughs> so that was really exciting to prove that it could be done um, sort of thing. So, so that was a really, really good experience. Um, after Veolia, I then came to um, Tabora, where I was the project leader myself sort of thing, running the um, the Greenfields projects. So I was there a little bit over three years um, sort of thing, and that was really just putting in S4, which started off as a financials, so like pretty much a core financials type scope. Um, and as the opportunities arose, we we increased the scope to being pretty much a full-scale ERP implementation. So, um, so those have been my most recent things. I consider myself, actually, I, I don't have probably the same depth of SAP knowledge that a lot of other folks have, um, but my my knowledge is pure S4. So going forward, um, sort of thing, it um, it actually really helps quite a lot because you can kind of, again, see for me, it's the, I always keep coming back to users and I keep coming back to the softer skills, the change management and things. You know, it's just such an easy sell for the business when you put up something which is so much easier to use and the clear benefits. So those are some of the things I like the most. Sure, sure. So um, what, what keeps you in the I suppose the ERP space, what keeps you in this in domain, Greg? Companies are about 80% the same as each other sort of thing. There's always 20% that gives you your industry flavour or gives you your competitive flavour than the others, but everybody has to process transactions. And, you know, obviously I think some of the on-world new line, um, new world and online businesses are a little bit different um, sort of thing where the transactions can be a lot simpler. Um, but if you think about a business who's physically moving things around, who owns inventory, um, who has to do those sorts of things, you process just a lot of transactions all the time. And your customers don't give a damn about how you process your transactions so long as they're smooth and lovely and efficient. And so I think this is where if you can get that stuff as, as again, as smooth and as clean as and efficient and as customer oriented as what you possibly can, there's a massive area for competitive advantage. You know, you, you go to those companies where they don't do the basic things well, they're a pain to deal with. You don't want to have that. You know, I think if you can have things where, you know, a customer can have a portal, they can see everything instantly. They can interact with you in real time. Your suppliers can get stuff off an Ariba uh, portal instantly. Things can be done B2B electronically. That, that's what the future of the world's about. No one wants to do back office stuff. You know, so my approach is, and what my focus has been is, just get that stuff done as well as you possibly can. <laughs> Again, your customers don't care, your suppliers don't care. They just want to deal with you really, really efficiently and get the best your company offers, um, sort of thing. So that's the thing for me is just to really try and commoditize that and just do it as efficiently as what you possibly can. And that's where I think some of these new technologies really facilitate that you know some of the machine learning things coming in um, again some of the better user interfaces some of the instantly available analytics you know that they change the way people do their jobs and that, that's that's part of the really exciting thing for me is just introducing that to a bigger audience and embedding it 
you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to work on, I'm really just as happy to work on the grubby detailed transaction, transaction stuff. So long as what comes out is something that's really nice and beautiful, mechanized and will run really well all the time. So, and I think if you can think about the automation of that back office stuff, um, and then the companies, you know, I'd be thrilled if our system went in and people used it the absolute minimum. I would be absolutely thrilled with that because what that means is they're doing the necessaries really efficiently, um, but they're getting on to do the really value added parts of their task, you know, for the majority of their time. That That's success. So. Sure, sure. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you've covered a, a hell of a lot there, you know, new mm. new technologies, um, like being one, for instance, um, the company using the, or getting the minimum or using a minimum at the system. Like, again, you've, you've covered you've covered quite a bit, but if you could um, define what a successful program is for you, um, yeah. what does that look like? And then secondly, how's your opinion changed over time and towards that? Yeah, Joe, look, that's interesting. I, I think um, for me, the definition of success is I think everyone, when the project, you know, comes along and the bigger it is, the more disruption you expect. Um, that's, um, you know, that, that's kind of the reality of it. You're changing more things, you're impacting more people, you're impacting more processes, um, but that's just the way it's going to be. Um, and, and everyone needs to buckle in for that ride. Um, so the whole thing for me is success is not the system works on day live, uh, on go live on day one. That, that is absolutely not the definition of success. Um, obviously, that's nice. <laughs> that would be good to have um, sort of thing. But, but the most important thing for me is it's probably that one, three, four, six months later um, where the business kind of settles in very quickly. Um, the user training has been successful. The users adopt the new technology. The platform technically works well. Um, the functionality works as it's expected and very, very quickly users are getting down to being confident and being competent. You know, that's the thing. It's, it's not what happens on day one, you know, because sometimes day one's an absolute letdown, as you guys know. People yeah. half the time don't use your system on day one. You're all waiting for the things to go bang and nothing happens, and it's a disappointment. But for me, it's more around the transition from project phase into go live phase. You know, you just want people to settle down quickly, and it's, it's the people part. They know what to do. They're not having problems. The system's working as expected. They can do what they need to do. They can do the rest of their jobs and the business is not disrupted. That That's success. And I think it's also to the whole transitioning part, which comes at two levels. I think it also comes at the, the transactional operational level, but it's also just around kind of some of that um, centre of expertise type work about kind of transitioning from project phase into, into run phase. You know, what, what do my support teams look like? Do I have the support people in place in the business to help the users? Do we have super user networks that can help us cut across? So, so for me, those sort of things are really important. And they're important in themselves, but they're also important around delivering the benefits and realising those as well, you know, because everyone shows up in front of the board and says, oh, could you please give me tens of millions of dollars to put in this system and I promise you'll get all these benefits and your business will look like this or that. I think sometimes those things get a bit forgotten on the journey. Um, you know, you focus on the technology, you focus on can I get the training done, can we get the, <laughs> the testing completed in time, are the users going to hate it uh, sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you're doing this for business value. Um, the, the senior leaders in the business and every single person in the business has an expectation it's going to make their lives better. And so that's where I think that benefit realisation really needs to be there as well. And you quickly need to get to that. Not you put it in, you hit your deadline and everyone looks like a champion and the system runs like rubbish. Um, it has to be, you know, it gets in, you get up to speed quickly and then you move into realisation phase and settling down. And, you know, where people three, four months later say, oh, 
how did we used to do that in the old system? That was much worse, wasn't it? You know, when you get those sort of comments, you know, that people have just adjusted so quickly, that, that's for me what success is, leading to the benefit realisation. And, of course, next steps. You know, no system you put in as the be-all and end-all. There's always something more to come. There's a second-gen project. There's another thing you may not have done because you ran out of time. Um, so that, for me, is just a smooth transition is probably the, um, the best way with the benefit realisation pretty quickly in your sites. Yeah, I t totally agree with it. The benefits piece, uh, Sarah, I don't know if you remember when we, we implemented our CRM internally here and um, it was very much like you were saying, it was like a, a deadline, it was implemented and it was off mm. off you go and none of us knew about the, the benefits of the system and even to this day, three years later, we're still learning about the, the benefits benefits now. So it's a massive, massive piece. But do, do you have any insight on how how you deliver those benefits to the businesses that you are working with? Is there any specific yeah, tips that you have? Yeah, Jay, look, I think part of it's been true to course and sticking to your strategy as well. Um, you know, there's always a lot of temptations. Like, like I find in pretty much every business I've worked with has been like this. Everyone starts off, guys, we're going to need to change things. We're going to need to do things differently. This is what the future will look like and you're going to need to change. As you get into it, all the little special reasons come out as to why people can't possibly do that, why that principle doesn't apply to this business, how our business is really unique and we can't possibly do that and it won't work for us. And so then everyone starts to head for the hills a little bit. Um, so what then happens, <laughs> I find, is there's an awful lot of sacrifices start to be made. A lot of lowest common denominator <laughs> um, solutions are accepted. And that's where you often water down your your your, your deliverables. Um, you know, you don't quite go this part. You take one step less, but you don't quite get to where you should get to. Um, and that's where I think you need to stick the course. I think you need your senior leadership support. But most importantly, you need to work with your business process owners and show them, guys, these are the benefits you get. You need to take a leap of faith with us. This is the backup plan we've got in case it fails. These are the mitigations we'll put in place to make sure it's a success um, sort of thing and push on with those. Because I think it's often the, the reduced scope or when people get a bit afraid um, you know, when your benefits are curtailed. So that, that's where I think part of it is just being bold and being courageous, like not being risky and not being stupid uh, sort of thing, but taking educated risks to to still make sure you achieve the scope and, and also to just still navigating towards what your original principles and objectives were. Um, as I say, I think sometimes things get a bit distracted. You'll get a stakeholder who's really painful or who's really risk averse or doesn't want to do this or he or she's the person who must be listened to. Um, you just got to be really careful with those things restrict you, I find. Um, sort of thing. So that's where having, I think, your steer co fully aligned to the principles. Um, they're the ones who are going to be living this with it after you go live. You know, most of the project team will disappear or go back to their day jobs. Um, you know, the steer co and the senior leaders of the business are the ones who'll be living with it. So just really making sure they're along for the journey and committed to it um, makes a lot of difference. Um, without the senior support I've found, you can really struggle because that's where all the politics at middle management comes in <laughs> and, and then you get mired. So, you know, so there, there's a few, there's probably a lot of things I've thrown at you there, but um, but for me, this is where I think you need to have that environment in place where you can still stick the course. But just probably to answer your question about has my opinion changed over time, I think when I started my career, I was a lot more kind of the go live was the big exciting moment um, sort of thing. As I'm getting, um, what's the word, kind of more experienced in my career and as I'm probably more of a peer with C-suite people or with senior leaders now, you really do start to see why are we doing this? We're not buying the technology. We're not buying any of this stuff. We're buying business benefit. We're buying business capability. And so making sure you deliver that is the part which is really, really, really clear to me now. Mm. And the, the other part as well too is, which is something which I've learned a lot the last couple of gigs, is just the importance of change management and focusing on humans. 
mm-hmm. um, sort of thing. The technology is a small propulsion of a project that we do. The technology is, you know, you turn it on, you configure it, you build a couple of interfaces, you put some middleware and stuff, and I don't want to degrade it because it is important, but it has to be there. It's not an optional, it's not a variable. The technical part has to be there. The part that makes you succeed is the soft skills and the human part, the change part, all those sorts of things, um, sort of thing. And if you don't get those right, that's usually what makes you fail. So so th- those things are really front and centre for me. And this is where for most of the, the Boral project, I've actually, and I've been proud to say this, I've had more change managers than IT managers. Mm, you know, because I think because because I think because half of this project was much more about changing process and changing practices and behaviours um, than what it was about the technology part. So the, as as time goes on, I'm just more and more wedded to those ideas where you know I think the people part really makes a difference, and you can't ignore it. You know, yeah. you can't have techies who focus on the technology and ignore the humans who are screaming and complaining. You can't do that. If they are screaming and complaining, you've got to listen to them. You've got to understand what the reason is and what the right action to take is. Yeah, I love the quote, people people make projects. Yeah. And people are going to use this stuff. It's not the, the, you know, the computers will run, they'll do whatever you tell them to do, but it's the people who use this stuff and love it or not. That's what that's what you need to focus on. Sure. Okay. So did you want to dive in with the next next three questions? I can. So um, in terms of, you know, what the top three imperatives you look for with your team when you deliver something, what are they? Yeah, Sarah, um, if, if, I usually ask for more than three, but I'll focus on three. Um, number one, you've just got to have the right <laughs> quality and quantity of resources. You've got to have the right people to achieve the job that you're doing. Um, that That's right now, that's, and I've mentioned quantity and I mentioned quality um, sort of thing. You've got to have the right folks and the right number of them. You don't want too many, you don't want too few. You don't want too many specialists, you don't want too many generalists um, mm. sort of thing got to have that right kind of blend of people now like all things in life a blend <laughs> is an imperfect science but um but it really is important how you do that um for me number two is passion the team have to be really passionate they have to believe in the brief they have to believe in the objective and you don't want people that are just there collecting a paycheck or someone who's just ticking off a box on their cv um you know the passion has to be there they have to see the benefit they have to be able to think about what the future looks like they have to be proud of what they're selling that part has to be there if you don't have that you're not going to win so forget about anything else you won't win so passion's key and the other part as well too i, I love diversity in a team uh, sort of thing. You, and, and for me, diversity is not, sorry, I'm, I'm a bit politically incorrect with some um, some of my terms sometimes. For me, it's not X percent of black people, gay people, other countries, people, whatever. That That's not the point. The point for me is people who think differently. Now, often people who think differently come from different life experiences. So those concepts are completely, completely relevant. But for me, it's not the presence of those people. It's the presence of those thoughts that come from diversity. And so this is where I will sometimes hire people who are completely different mould to me just because they think differently to me. I will hire someone with a completely different style to me just because they bring that diversity or that view. I'll sometimes hire people that I know are going to disagree with me and some people who are who may generally tend to think the same way that I do because we've got the same background um, sort of thing. But I think it's really, really important you just have that diversity of thought, um, you know, just different people with different ideas, different industries, different experiences. Some people have had the same problems in a different scenario and might have a different point of view. I want some 
some junior people who are enthusiastic. I want some more experienced people who probably don't have the same energy, but they know how to do things really well, um, sort of thing. So that diversity part for me is really, really, really important. Um, and across the streams as well, whether it's the technical guys, whether it's the business folks or the SMEs or the um, the, the PMO type folks, I think just think that diversity of thoughts really important. And also too, as part of that environment where people are learning and developing, you always learn more. I, th I think you learn a lot from people like you, but you can learn so much from people that are not like you. So yeah. I, I think you know, it helps the project, but it also helps the personal development angle as well. A hundred percent. And I think the word diversity has got such a double-edged sword now in this market. It's yeah. a really hard question to broach, especially as a recruiter, when we have a client say, well, I want of my shortlist, I want 70% women. And even as a woman, part of me is just like, oh, that's good to hear. But then the other part of me is like, is that good to hear, though? Is that what you want your team to be standing on? Or do you want the right person for the role? And that then opens up a whole other can of worms of like, well, did everyone get the same opportunities to come into this right role? And then mm. that's another question. But I think when you start asking for diversity at your hiring stage, you're probably not talking about diversity early enough for it to yeah. actually make a difference in careers and in your landscape of the market that you're working in. I think that yeah. it's become such a, a, a very hard topic to broach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think so, Sarah. And I think everyone, for me, everyone has their own lens on that topic um, sort of thing. And I think different people at different levels of maturity, uh, you know, mm -hmm. have a different view as well. And I think it's also like a lot of these PC topics, it's very hard sometimes to say what you really think or say what you really feel without being branded one thing or the other. Um, but for me, I just want different people who think in different ways. If I think about the Boral Project, and this chap will know who I'm talking about, um, I hired someone who was absolutely brilliant, but I knew you're going to be high maintenance, mate. I know you're going to be high maintenance, but your brilliance is going to pay for it, uh, sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, sort of thing, but but this is where you've also too got to be bold, and you've also got to think about you know, um, and, and also too if you think about it, another thing just to think about with that kind of team dynamic and from the diversity side is when you meet the business, you want to impress them, you know, you want them to think, hey, these guys, they, you know, they may not be exactly from my industry or may not have been here for twenty years, but these guys know what they're talking about, they understand what I'm asking for, you know, and so this this is where I think again that diversity and the passion part's really important, you know, from an outward looking as well as an inward contribution as well. Yeah, and um, like even that, when you are managing those types of people, it probably comes straight into it. What is your methodology there? How do you? accurate like how do you appropriately manage a project and what did you like can you define that yeah Sarah look I I think um again look I'm a little bit different here where some people like to package themselves as like a waterfall person or an agile person or whatever for me I just kind of see them as different tools in the toolbox um I, I know a lot of people don't think that way and they think you need to do one or the other or the other or the other um I, I just as I say I, I've got a toolbox it's about 20 meters that way um it's got a hammer in it it's got a spanner in it it's got a screwdriver in it now they're all fantastic tools for a particular job um, they'll do the job really well, but I'm not always going to need a screwdriver. Sometimes I need a hammer and sometimes I need a spanner. Um, so for me sort of thing, I, I feel free to choose from the different ones available um, and, and also to absolutely feel the, the opportunity to do hybrids and things as well. You know, if you look at SAP Activate, for example, you know, it's basically waterfall, call it whatever you like. Um, it's basically waterfall because pretty much that's the best way to deliver an ERP project and has been for decades. Um, but you can grab flavours of the other ones. 
you know, and kind of pull in some of the, the hybrid methods or some of the agile methods to do that. So for me, you know, if I'm doing an ERP, it's predominantly going to be waterfall because I think that's what works well. Um, you know, if you've got a project with a defined outcome, waterfall is going to work best. Um, if you've got a project where you don't have a defined outcome, agile is going to work better. So I, I think you just steal whichever one works best for you and go with whatever gives you best effect. I don't think there's any kudos or badges from having one or the other. I don't see any of this being better than each other. I think they're just different tools for different jobs. So um, so for me, it'll just depend a little bit upon which um, which task I'm doing as to what approach I would take. Um, yeah. with, with those. So it, it's, and I don't think people should limit themselves by saying I'm an agile person because an agile person can be a waterfall person and vice versa. It's not, you know, doesn't knock you out. So I'm hearing yeah. you, uh, you adapt a lot then, Greg. You adapt with your people, you adapt with your, you know, your methodology, you adapt on each project. Look, look, and I think that's exactly right, Jay. And I think also too, even like in terms of your project management approach has to be different at different styles of the project as well. You know, um, when I was on the Boral project, we had a, a nine month COVID pause. Now, we didn't pause for one second. <laughs> we, used, we used every moment of that time to kind of get ahead as much as we could, to work with the business, to understand the solution, to pre-prepare a lot of things um, sort of thing. Now, that was the time when you could do more consultation, you could do more engagement. Um, talking to more people was a perfectly fine thing to do. Um, making decisions instantly wasn't so important. As you go through, we needed to switch mindsets from that. Okay, we don't have the time to do this, guys. Now we're back on the normal timetable and we need to get rocking and rolling. Now that means we don't consult with as many folks. We need to learn with what we've got. Um, we're sometimes going to need to make a decision where we don't have a full understanding of all the facts and go with it. So, th but this, and so sometimes you get a bit more directive, sometimes you're a bit more consultative, um, but you also just need to be reflective of where you're at. So that's where, again, don't ever, you know, people listening, don't, don't tie you, don't think you need to tie yourself into one style or one approach or whatever. Um, in my very, very, very first job um, sort of thing, I had a fantastic financial controller. His name was Kevin Lavashadia, and we were talking about personal styles. And he said, Greg, don't have one personal style, have many of them and use the right one in the right circumstance. And I've taken that and I've used that a lot throughout my career um, sort of thing where just use the best tool for the job and you'll get the best outcome from it. And don't feel restricted and don't feel bad because you didn't use this one or you weren't perfectly pure or something. That's um, you know, achieving the objective and in the right way is the, the right thing to aim for. Yeah, definitely. I think this is probably like the dreaded recruitment question or the dreaded interview question. What would be your biggest failure and <laughs> what did you learn from it? Um, look, I, um, what's the word? I've probably never had a big personal failure, if I can put it that way. Maybe that means I'm not trying hard enough. Um, that's probably a discussion for another day, uh, sort of thing. I don't think it's that, but maybe it is, um, sort of thing. But I, I, we did actually have a, a team failure, um, that was pretty substantial. This would have been, uh, probably 15, 15 years ago now when I was working for Unilever in the Lipton brand, we had the, the Lipton tea brand. I was the, the commercial manager for the brand. Um, we had a category team. We tried to do a relaunch of it. Um, we were consciously trying to push the envelope. And so this was a marketing case study at university for some time afterwards. So you guys might have... I think I did it. Yeah. I think I, I did this. I think I actually, you know, when you said Lipton, I was like, would it be okay go on go on we'll see uh, uh, I did it, I did it, but I was on the other side of the coin um so, so anyway what we were trying to do is just basically um just rejuvenate the brand change the brand image um change the positioning and drive market share so we, we knew we were pushing the envelope sort of thing um you know the whole team signed off on it the board signed off on it everyone was on board with the strategy we were taking and in the end we just pushed the envelope too far 
um, consumers weren't quite ready for what we were proposing. We used some language that was a little bit confusing to them. Um, and I remember I was at my desk late one night um, and my friend Tony, who was the sales guy, was sitting behind me, his face down about here. Tony, what's up? It can't be that bad. And he showed me the sales chart, like the scan sales for the last three or four weeks. We were market leader by healthy distance. Our sales were half what they'd been. The line went like this, and then it went, sorry, that went wow. across, down, and then across again. <laughs> And I thought, oh, Tony, that's why you look unhappy. Okay, uh, what happened? And anyway, so we said, look, you know, consumers are confused and uh, and this isn't going the way that we wished. So we had a, um, I'm being recorded, so we had an oh, bug out moment uh, sort of thing. Where, <laughs> but and, and it was really bad because we went from, we were the number one player, um, number one tea player in the world. We actually had the best market share of any Unilever country in the world. And we'd harped it overnight with a relaunch. Um, so it was one of those times where you actually had to, and, and as a team, we learned this um, sort of thing. It is not a time to go and head for the hills. It is not a time to blame other people. It is not a time to go and pretend it's all going to get better in two weeks' time. So so really the key takeouts from me were that we, A, identified our problem very quickly. B, we owned up to it very quickly. We went to the board and said, this has gone badly. This is what the consequence is. This is what we're seeing. Um, we had the courage to go along and we came up with an action plan. Um, and sort of thing. And this is where probably my best learning from this, other than being upfront, we got supported by the board. They appreciated the frankness and the freshness and the mature approach. Um, the part we started off the, and this is the part which was a really interesting to me. We started off where the, the year wasn't obviously going very well, and particularly with us having stuffed up as well. They gave us a small amount of money to fix it. And as a team, I remember sitting around at the table one day and say, what, how are we going to do it? We can do some advertising, we do some promotions. How are we going to fix this up? And we said, no, 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 we need to think about what's the requirement to get the job done to get us back to where we need to be. You know, not what's the cheapest way to get out of the hole we're in, but where's the place where we need to restore ourselves to? What's it going to cost to do that? And in the end, I think we asked for twice as much as what we were given, but we achieved about five times as much. And within you know six months, we we're pretty much back to where we were before. So that was the whole thing for me about the rectification is not a quick and dirty, cheapest possible thing to get you back out and make it look as though you're doing something. Um, have a clear objective there to restore yourself where you need to be. So um, that, that, that was the thing for me. And, and we were supported by the business. No one got sacked. Um, no one got um, railroaded sort of thing. It was just one of those things where we, we took a risk. It didn't quite work out. Um, but then we responded quickly. So, so yeah, that was a, we had some pretty dark moments, it had to be said. Um, but then again, as a team, we had to really, really fight together um, to achieve those outcomes. And, you know, and I'm proud of where we got to in the end. So Great story. Like it. Yeah. Um, I think you, you said a quote earlier on in the uh, in the podcast, and you just kind of lived lived with you uh, for your for your career. Um, mm. But yeah, who who would you say has been the biggest uh, biggest influence on your career, and and what did they what did they teach you? Um, Jay, I, I probably won't mention names um, because I'm sure I'll forget someone, and then I'll upset somebody, um, which is not my intention because I've pretty much had very very good bosses, as I say, throughout my career. Um, that look, if, if I think about the ones that have had the biggest influence on me, they're the ones who have, um, how do you say, they've given you a go. They've taken a risk with you. Um, mm -hmm. they've, given you them, uh, they've given you some latitude. Uh, they've given you the brief to do. They've given you the trust to get on and do it. Mm -hmm. They've provided support where it's required. They've provided guidance where it's required uh, sort of thing. But, but also to just allowed you to develop and grow. I, I've never had... 
I've, I've never really had a micromanager boss sort of thing. Um, I've always had people who kind of set the objective. Okay, Greg, go off and achieve that. And then you go off and do it. And most of the time you get it right. And sometimes you get it wrong um, sort of thing. But they've always kind of supported those things. And I think that's where that kind of personal development comes from. Um, you have to come up with your own ideas and you've got to then work hard to make them happen um, sort of thing. So I've had really, really good role models in terms of people that are hardworking people, um, particularly in my Unilever days. That's where I think I got most of my um, founding influences sort of thing, but really substantial people who didn't do what made them look good or got them promoted. They actually did the job properly. Um, they gave what the business was required. They built substantial teams around them. They built substantial people underneath them and around them um, sort of thing. And, and that's probably some of the lessons that I, I kind of carry forward with as well. And this is where too, I always like I'm famous in my team, maybe too much of this for telling stories or sharing an insight or um, just maybe giving someone a tip or a trick or a push in the right direction or maybe a little head shake if that's not quite the right direction um sort of thing because i think i've got a bit of a responsibility now to share you know now that when i when i was the 20 something and now i'm the 50 year old um you know sort of thing i think the lessons that i learned i think i've got a bit of an obligation to pass those on to others where i can so you know i kind of enjoy doing that and i think this is where you can you know you can make a difference with folks and people really appreciate when you take some time you know, to share a story with them or to try and give them an insight or maybe you can help them solve a problem or something um, sort of thing. So, again, I think about some of those guys and how good they were to me um, sort of thing. But, again, it's for me, it's just kind of giving someone an opportunity and uh, sort of thing and supporting them on the journey and making sure they develop as well. Sure, sure. That's probably a good good segue um, into the, the last the last question, which is um, what would you tell your, your 21-year-old self if you had that opportunity? Yeah. Yeah, look, this is interesting because I, I, the, the world's changed a lot, I, I think, since then. I think it, it, what I would say to myself is I would um, take your opportunities, absolutely take your opportunities. The world's a really big place. Um, it's a bigger place now than what it was uh, back when I started work. But take your opportunities, um, push yourself, work hard. Um, I've always done that part, but push yourself and work hard. Uh, make sure you make a difference. You know, with the things that you do, just making sure you're really making a difference. You're doing something which isn't just, you know, I'm doing another month end or I'm doing another budget or whatever, but I'll work on this project where I can really make a difference, whether it's making a saving or increasing a capability or something. But um, And also to being open to different ideas, even something that looks a bit weird to begin with, um, pretty much everything you do, you learn from. So uh, sort of thing. So um, sort of thing. So I'd say just take your opportunities, you know, like I've never expected I'd spend, you know, eight, eight years of my career working overseas in two countries. Um, but they're probably the ones where I learned the most um, just in terms of being open to cultural diversity, um, being in terms of where different styles of people, you know, you you go and present something to an English, a British manager. Oh, this is a proposal. I'd like to do this or that. And they'll say, oh, that's a really interesting idea, Greg. I'll come back to you on that. What they mean is that's a really stupid idea and I'm never going <laughs> to Now, you go and present that to a German or a Dutch manager and they'll say, Greg, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I'm never going to approve it. Now, in the second one, you know where you stand and you can go off and fix it. In the first one, you'll spend three months going around and around the garden, um, you know, sort of thing. So but, so these are the things I see now with, the, with my different cultural eyes um, sort of thing. But you only get that from living things and experiencing things. So, you know, take your opportunities. Um, you never know when they'll come along again. And, and you often develop a lot more than you realise. So that that would be my advice to myself. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time today, Greg. That was um, that was fantastic. And Sarah, thank you for for setting that up and 